This is a very serious podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to this episode of Sputniks. Today, Hannah and I are going to be continuing our uh, our first book club discussion. We're talking about C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces. Welcome to Splanknicks, the Society for the Preservation of Literature, the Arts, Numinosity, Culture, Humor, <laughs> Nerdiness, Inspiration, Creativity, and Storytelling. We've got yeah. some input out, what we can do? Yeah. Okay. What's your input, Pumpkin? My input. I've been reading a book called Mind Hunter, which was the basically the inspiration for that next Netflix series of the same, the same name. It's about how the uh, behavioral science unit was created. So kind of like in a uh, silence of the lambs, that was a, a criminal profiling unit. Yes. Um, yes. And then uh, the, the next files so yeah, was based wait, on that as the, well. Yeah. What's his name? This agent, John Douglas, is actually the model for Jack Crawford in The Silence of the Lambs. Oh, okay. Good to know. Yeah, oh, so that cool. character is based off of this guy, John Douglas. <clears throat> I'll bet that's fascinating. Wow. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, my, uh, my input is I'm still working on um, reading uh, Dune again. Mm -hmm. um, I'm about two-thirds of the way through. Um, Really, really good. Um, really enjoy that book. All right, Hannah. So you want to launch us into our uh, our continuation of our Till We Have Faces? Yes, discussion? absolutely. So Till We Have Faces is C.S. Lewis's last work of fiction written in 1956, I believe. Yep, 1956. And it is a retelling of the Cupid and Psyche myth. Uh, one of the... Um, one of the main things that I discovered when I was sort of reading about this book and something that I kind of noticed because I'm familiar with some of C.S. Lewis's other work is that this book is sort of like a fictional exploration of the four loves, which, um, which C.S. Lewis explains in another book. And the title of that book is the four loves. Uh, so basically there are diff different characters are sort of serve as examples of these four loves and how those loves can possibly become twisted or corrupted. So sort of like bad versions of what these kinds of love can look like. We'll start with, let's start with Eros. So Eros is kind of like, is, is romantic love. And the person in the, in the story that portrays, portrays Eros is, is Redival, the, the middle sister of the three. Uh, she's more concerned with physical love and romance. She gets into all of these sort of scrapes where she she was found kissing one of the palace guards and that guard they uh castrated him and threw him out of the city extreme <laughs> wow kind of just 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 unchecked girlish silliness as related to romantic love and 
that um, that's kind of the the twisted um, perversion of what what eros should actually be like, um, which is like, as we know, love is to wish the good of the other. So right. instead of, so a good example of Eros would be two people who care for each other mutually and want the good of each other, as opposed to this girl who just wanted to have some fun and ended up getting some poor schmuck castrated. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, he actually shows up later in the book. He's like a, he's like a, he's a, a, a eunuch musician from another court that comes to visit. He did pretty well for himself. Um, okay, yeah. Yeah, wow. despite that little <clears throat> hiccup. <laughs> um, the next of the four loves is philia, friendship. And mm -hmm. the example we have of that is Bardia, who is the, he's the captain of the guard um, in the city of Gloam. He is a, a true friend to Orwell. He sees past her ugliness to the person beneath, to the, 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 the woman who's skilled with a sword and intelligent, and he cares about her well-being when she decides she's going to go to the mountain. Um, so C.S. Lewis can, describes Philia as a, a love that comes from companionship and common interest. And Bardia is a good example of this. He doesn't suck up to the, to the queen and he doesn't, but he doesn't put her down either. He's very open and honest with her and cares about her well-being. Um, is he the one who taught her to sword fight? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. He taught her to sword fight. Yeah. <clears throat> And yeah, when most people would just see her ugliness and say, oh, she'll never make a good bride or anything, he, he, looks, he looks at her and, and, he, and he says, well, I mean, you look like you'd be pretty good with a sword. You've got a good reach and you're courageous. And stuff like he says that she's brave and all this yeah. stuff. It's awesome. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Okay. Let's yeah, talk I remember about... enjoying, uh, enjoying Bardia quite a bit as a character. He was, he was good. Yeah, he was a good, yeah. Good egg, as they say. A good egg, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, what else? Here mm -hmm. is another, another love that gets twisted in here. We talked about this a little bit. Um, storge, which is affection. So commonly, it's a love between, like, a mother and a child. Because a mother loves the child... And gives it what it needs and that's the gift part and then the child loves the mother because the mother provides for it <clears throat> and so this love when it goes bad it can lead to jealousy or smothering and um, the character that we see until we have faces who personifies this the storge gone bad is Orwell. Right, right. I remember last time we talked about how um, her love has been described as uh, as vampiric. 
Yeah, devouring sucks. love. Yeah. yeah, devouring love sucks the life out of the other person. Yeah. Like when the need disappears, the love is in danger. Yeah, possessiveness is a very unhealthy form of this, this affectionate love. But I think in another of C.S. Lewis's books called The Great Divorce, the character of the mother. Yeah. Remember? The mother who needed to be needed by her son. Right. Right. And she wants to be needed so much that she wants her uh, son to stay in hell with her rather than, um, than, yeah. uh, than move, move into the, the uh, realm of blessedness. <laughs> she wants to have mm -hmm. her son continue to be in hell with her so that she mm -hmm. can continue to fix him. As yeah. She says. So I don't care. Like they don't, people with this twisted storge love, they don't want the person to be happy. They don't want the good of the person. They want the person to need them, basically. Right. right. The love is more for their, for their own selves and for their own feelings. Yeah, and yeah. For them to feel like they're important. Yeah. I mean, I suppose you could, you could say that this kind of love in um, the, 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 this parent-child relationship is, is really subject to this, I think, because... Mm -hmm. It's, it's so natural that the parent-child relationship is one of, you know, the, the parent is providing and, and is, um, loves the child because they're so dependent and they're so, you know, cute and, and, mm -hmm. and charming and you just are drawn to that as a parent mm -hmm. and, and, and you, you just naturally love your children. And then the parent or the child is drawn to the, to the parent in, in that need that there's very mm -hmm. a lot of mutuality going on there. Yeah. But at a certain point, that, that has to come to an end, and, and, and if it doesn't, then like you said, it becomes twisted. There, I think that, that it, this can happen in, um, in Eros-type relationships, too, where, because yeah. there's, there's an element of affection in any romantic relationship mm -hmm. that can become twisted, like, like a person who is infatuated with another person. Yeah. You have to be careful that the person's not in love with the feeling of being in love. Right. And yeah. not just in love with the actual person. Yeah. Because, you know, if it gets twisted into this sort of obsession or, or this sort of need, neediness to it. Yeah. Uh, so continue. What, uh, is that, is that all about storge or twisted storge? Storge. Yes. Um, there is a, there is a quote from when Orwell goes to visit actually Bardia's wife. Um, Bardia was quite a bit older than than Orwell was, and he he passed away. And she went to basically give her condolences to Bardia's wife. The wife says that Bardia was basically that Orwell was overworking Bardia and like keeping him to herself, um, giving him things to do, keeping him busy, so that they could just be together all the time. Um, and- Bardia's wife is, is saying this. Yes, that okay. she says, you kept, you like kept him away from the, from his house. You kept like, even in his dreams, like you would have nightmares and at nighttime he would, he would dream that on the battlefield, the queen was in trouble and he had to save her, you know, like that's where his, that's where his mind was and everything. And Orwell says, then why did you not tell me? A word from you would have sufficed. <clears throat> or are you like the gods who will speak only when it is too late? 
tell you, she said, looking at me with a sort of wonder, tell you, and so take away from him his work, which was his life, and all his glory and his great deeds, make a child and a dotard of him, keep him to myself at that cost, make him so mine that he was no longer his, and yet he would have been yours. He was my husband, not my house dog. He was to live the life he thought best and fittest for a great man, not that which would most pleasure me. You have taken, you've taken my son now too. He will turn his back on his mother's house more and more. He will seek strange lands and be occupied with matters I do not understand and go where I can't follow and be daily less mine, more his own and the world's. Do you think I'll lift up my little finger if lifting it would stop it? And you, you can bear that? You ask that. Oh, Queen Orwell, I begin to think you know nothing of love. Or no, I'll not say that. Yours is queen's love, not commoners. Perhaps you who spring from the gods love like the gods, like the shadow brute. They say the loving and the devouring are all one, don't they? So the kind of love that Orwell has for people in her life is, yeah, this devouring love. De the loving and the devouring are the same thing. <clears throat> And uh, as like kind of like a I don't care what the person I don't care if they're happy as long as they're mine kind of and the wife has a different perspective which is like well maybe I could have kept him at home and he would have been mine more but he wouldn't have been as happy. And he wouldn't have been free either. And he wouldn't have been free, yeah. Because that's what, what true love does, is it, it grants freedom to the beloved. Mm -hmm. It doesn't yep. hold and, and cling to and, and, and try to possess the beloved. It lets, that, lets the beloved uh, free to mm. uh, make their own decisions. Um, you know, yeah, 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 that's good. I, li I like that speech by Barty's wife. That was really good. Mm -hmm. My, in yeah. my notes, I'm really glad you read that because in my notes from the, the um, seminar that we went to, you know, at Wheaton mm -hmm. College about all this, I've got, um, uh, I was going to write, it says, Bardia's wife. And then I wrote nothing. <laughs> it's like, oh, I wonder what I was going to say there. But now I guess yeah, I know is that okay. yeah. Bardia's wife, Bardia's wife understood the true meaning of love. So the last love is agape, which is basically like divine love. And we see this love in Psyche. Her ability to love is part of what brings her to godhood eventually. She gives up her happiness for Oruel. Uh, there's that scene where, where Oruel goes to where the palace is, the palace that she can't see, but that Psyche can see and that Psyche lives in. And Orwell has this plan to get Psyche to come with her. She, she takes a knife and she like stabs herself in the arm. And she says, if you don't come with me, you see how serious I am. If you don't come with me, I'm going to, I'm going to kill you and then kill myself basically is what she says. Well, that's messed up. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> I'm not going to let you stay here with this 
with this beast. And so I'm going to end your life and then I'll have nothing else to live for because you are my world. And so I'll just kill myself as well. And so Psyche basically decides, okay, 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 fine. I'll do what your, I'll do what your plan is. I'll go in with the lamp and look at my husband and see what he looks like and everything. Just don't do it. Just don't, just don't do that. No. Like, <laughs> and she, even though she doesn't want to, and even though she knows that something bad is going to happen when she does this, she goes and she does it anyway to basically save Orwell from herself. And then the, 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 the mountain shakes and the castle falls and, and Orwell hears Psyche running away, sobbing into the wilderness and so that's that's kind of the act of love that starts psyche on her her journey to becoming more more godlike mm-hmm. doing completing her tasks that she has to do and just her whole journey there was initiated by this ability to give up her own happiness for someone else who was misguided and that was completely crazy. But I think it was definitely a decision made with love. So, yeah. Yeah. I've heard um, the the word agape uh, translated as um, gift, gift, love, gift, love. Yeah. Also um, self donating, Mm -hmm. self donating love. Yeah. Um, And it's, uh, yeah, like you said, divine love, um, which is, uh, that's truly the kind of love that um, in, in its essence is to, to will the good of the other. You had another question that was interesting. Why did the original myth bother C.S. Lewis so much? Um, I couldn't really find any concrete information about why it bothered him so much. I've read also that this story is a little bit autobiographical when it comes to sort of like the spiritual journey because at the beginning of the book of course Oriwell is not on good terms with the gods and I think a lot of that is kind of based off of C.S. Lewis himself yeah how old was he when he converted converted to Christianity because he was an atheist for a long time yeah he was an atheist for a long time like from the time of him going away to um like he was raised in a, in a Christian home and then he went away to boarding school and that kind of, yeah, he became an atheist sometime during that boarding school. Mm-hmm. And he, he converted to, um, and then he went away to be a soldier. He was an undergraduate in college when World War I began and he had to mm-hmm. go into the, uh, into the armed forces to that war. And um, he was still an atheist even then, like, um, you know, the, the phrase, there are no atheists in foxholes. Mm-hmm. Well, that did not apply to C.S. Lewis because he wrote in, in his autobiography that even when the shells were exploding all around him and he was in danger of death, you know, moment by moment, he says, quote, I never sunk so low as to pray. Mm-hmm. So he was a stubborn atheist. Yeah. But it, when he was out um, of, uh, of the army and he, and he finished his undergraduate degree and he was, um, I believe he was a, he was a, a fellow, you know, a tutor at, at Maudlin College in Oxford. Mm-hmm. And he became friends with um, with Tolkien mm-hmm. and um, another uh, another Christian uh, professor there, Hugo Dyson. Mm-hmm. They were friends 
had these long talks and, um, and he was sort of on his journey. So it was sometime while he was a professor and I can't remember the exact date, unfortunately. <laughs> mm. it, it would be in um, Surprised by Joy, I think is where you would find it. Yeah, the most reluctant convert in all of England. <laughs> yeah, the most... <laughs> yeah. He describes himself as being dragged, kicking and screaming into, into faith in God. Yeah, he just couldn't kind deny of, it anymore. <laughs> it kind of lined up and in, in his mind. Yeah. Yeah. So well, he, was, he was intellectually honest, and that's where his intellectual search took him. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So that might be sort of how we relate to the gods and how not, or not, I think not wearing it, we're not wearing masks and being our true selves and just accepting what's going on and just being like, okay, yes, this is what I'm thinking. That's what Lewis means in the lo closing lines of the book is, you know, how can we come face to face with the gods till we have faces? Mm -hmm. In other words, until we're honest with ourselves, with yeah. the universe. And that, that's the story of transformation, isn't it? That's what Oriwell's story is about, is she had mm -hmm. this false face, this veil. Mm. And she had to, she was on a journey to finally let her true face shine through. Mm -hmm. And that's, um, that, that's this concept of identity and essence that I was talking about. I, yeah, I, let's go I into got, that. Yeah, I got that, that concept from a, um, from a actually person who is, is a Hollywood, you know, screenwriting guru. He helps screenwriters construct their stories, you know. Hmm, um, okay. and, and what he talks about is there, there's two things that you need to know about a character. One, the first thing is their identity. And the mm -hmm. second thing is their essence. And what, this, what all good stories are about, um, on an internal level anyway, I mean, all stories have to have a good external plot, like interesting mm -hmm. things that happen that keep the audience engaged, but also what gives a story depth and, and meaning and, and re-watchability and re-readability is the inner journey that the character goes on, something that they call the character arc. The yeah. character starts at, 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 at a certain point which is a place of, of brokenness, a place of woundedness, a place where there are flaws and faults and they're in a rut of some kind. Mm -hmm. And they go on this arc, this journey, and they, and they come to what's, what, um, what this, this author calls the character's essence, which is their true self, the person they were truly created to be. Um, for example, in um, uh, Star Wars, Luke Skywalker's identity is I'm a whiny little farm boy. I can't do anything. I hate the empire, but I can't do anything about it right now. Right? That's not who he was created to be. Mm. That's his identity. That's the rut that he's stuck in. But his essence is that he is a Jedi like his father. Mm. Um, and, you know, which is a force for good in the universe. Um, so that's, that's, that's the arc that Luke Skywalker goes on. Yeah. Um, you know, um, what's another one? Um, Frodo Baggins in, in The Hobbit, you know. Right. He's just a hobbit. He's just a little person. You who, mean Bilbo Baggins? Well, oh, both, both. Both. Bilbo Baggins and Frodo Baggins are just little people. We're just halflings. You know, I mean, that, their, their very identity is wrapped up in, in who they are and what they are. Halflings. Little people who can't amount to anything. They can't do anything. They can't change mm -hmm. the world. Mm -hmm. But in reality, they are, in fact, heroic. Mm -hmm. So their identity, their rut that they're stuck in is this. They're just little people who can't do anything. But mm -hmm. their essence is that they are uh, truly 10 feet tall. 
Yep. Yeah. Um, Even the smallest person can change the course of the future. Exactly. So any any good story is going to give you that that journey to uh, to to see the character go on and hopefully identify within yourself. A lot of you can find a lot of really really good and helpful sort of psychology or self help from from a from a very good story. You know, if, uh, when you see a character go from a place of brokenness and woundedness and and, mm-hmm. and, and weakness and, and overcome those flaws and weaknesses through, yeah. through heroic effort and action. Yeah. And um, maybe, maybe with the help of a mentor, you know, using some of those mm-hmm. archetypal uh, things yeah. and, and come to a place of, of where, they, where they, they finally discover their essence, their true face. This is, this is the, the agreed soul addressing, uh, addressing God or the gods. Before your face, questions die away. You, yourself, are the answer. Well, thanks, everybody. We hope you enjoyed this uh, part two of our conversation about Till We Have Faces. Really enjoyed this book. Highly recommend it, as you can probably tell. So uh, do, get, do go read it if you get a chance. And um, uh, thanks again for joining us. And we will see you at the next episode. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.